This morning's scripture reading will be from Luke uh, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and, and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham, Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I'm glad to be able to be with you this morning. Appreciate your presence being here. We have a few of our members who are not here with us. I'm not sure if what their situations are, but let's be praying for them. This morning, I'm going to begin the first part of a two-part sermon. I didn't intend initially for it to be two parts, but I took mercy upon you and decided that I needed to break it into two parts. The title of the sermon this morning is The Truth About Hell. I don't often preach sermons specifically on hell. Don't, I don't know that I have ever preached a sermon specifically on hell, but I think sometimes we need to go back and revisit that. We need to understand a few things. The thing that got me to thinking about it was in our class on Thursday morning the last time, we talked about fear being a proper motivation to be faithful to God. Now that's not going to be the ultimate motivation or the end motivation that we have, but it's okay for fear to be a motivating factor. We do not uh, pick fiery logs out of the campfire for fear of burning our hands. We do not play in the middle of the interstate at 5 o'clock on 24 in fear of being run over, right? So fear is a healthy thing when used properly. Sergeant Major Daniel Daly was a United States Marine and one of, nine, of only 19 men, seven of which were Marines, who ever received the Medal of Honor twice. Of the Marines who are double recipients, only two of those Marines received their medals in two separate conflicts. The other would be Major General Smedley Butler. In 1918, though, during the Battle of uh, Bilou Wood near the Marne River in France, Sergeant Major Daly was recommended for a third Medal of Honor. 
But as the process was going through and the paperwork was being done, someone decided that it was not fitting for a man to be given three medals of honor. So he was giving, given the Distinguished Service Cross and later the Navy Cross. But there's something that happened during that battle that I think is interesting, at least to me. Major, Sergeant Major Daly led an offensive charge with this statement, with this question, saying to his men, Come on, men, do you want to live forever? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? That's a wonderful question, in fact. But what is the answer to it? Yes, of course, we want to live forever. Now, it may not be in this life where we want to remain forever, but we want to live forever. And the fact of the matter is that every person who has ever lived will live eternally in the next life. That's going to happen. But we're going to be in one of two places, right? Most people have given uh, at least some thought to what lies on the other side of time. Exactly what is in eternity? What are the circumstances with which we will be surrounded? What's it going to be like to live in a place where hopefully there's no more crying, no more sin, no more sorrows, no more pain and agony, no loss, no separation? At least we have given some thought to that, most of us. Now many speculate about eternity. Philosophers and religious men have made their names speculating about this and not counting the fortunes that they have amassed writing about it. One example of that is a lady by the name of Betty Eady. She wrote a bestseller called Embraced by the Light which, she alleges, is an accurate account of what happens after death. Now, Miss Edie supposedly died after undergoing a hysterectomy, and five hours later she returned. And with her, she brought the secrets of heaven revealed to her by Jesus. Now, do you think anyone believed her outlandish story? Yes. It was on the New York bestseller list for over 40 weeks. It was number one for five weeks. She sold countless copies of that. But you know what is missing from her book? Anything about hell and judgment. None of that is mentioned in her book. In fact, Edie said that Jesus never wanted to do or say anything that would offend me during her visit to heaven. It seems to me that Jesus has been relegated to the role of happy guide in heaven as opposed to the man, to the man who gave himself into the hands of murderers to forgive sin. Now there are only a few men who could ever speak with authority regarding what eternity is like, what the other side of life is like. Of course, the Lord Jesus, He could speak with authority concerning that. We know Lazarus spent four days in paradise and then returned. John was given the revelation from Jesus, therefore having been given information about what the next life will be like. And then, of course, we have the Apostle Paul who was caught up to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. But it was Jesus who gave us 
a little more detail. Paul made a statement about being caught up, but he said it was unlawful to speak of such things. It appears that Miss Edie came back and couldn't stop talking about it. Jesus told us more about the afterlife than anyone, while others speculate about it. He told us of the place where the righteous will be forever, John 14, 1 through 2, and He makes us long to go there. He told us about the home of the wicked after this life is over, and He makes us afraid to go there, and rightly so. In fact, Jesus spoke of hell much more than He ever spoke of heaven. According to our Lord, the final and eternal abode of those who die and depart, who are wicked, is Gehenna. And it is a word used by the Jews before the time of Christ. It is found twelve times in the Greek New Testament. Eleven of those times come from the lips of our Lord. Gehenna comes from Gehenum. Gehenum, or the land of Hinnom, a valley just south of Jerusalem. By the time of Christ, it had been relegated to a filthy, smelly dump that bred worms. Maybe that explains why Christ referred to hell as the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Mark 9, verse 44. In the Old Testament, it is a place where the Jews, during times of idolatry, offered human sacrifice. Joshua 15, 8 and 2 Kings 23, verse 10. And that's human sacrifice were their own children. The truth about hell is that it is real. That's the truth, isn't it? And it's a place that we need to understand if we're going to be in heaven one day. Hell, and this is going to be our first point, is a place of terror. Hell is a place of terror. It's a place of fear, isn't it? There is fear throughout. That's the only emotion that we're going to recognize. It's the most prominent emotion that will be there. Of course, there will be some sadness and things of that nature, but it is a place of terror, fear. On May the 11th, 1996, 110 people boarded a flight and came face to face with the reality of death. Do you remember Value Jet Flight 592 as it crashed into the Florida Everglades? I worked with a man at that time who was supposed to have been on that flight, and he missed it. The National Transportation and Safety Board later released the transcripts of what we know as that black box who records things. That records things and. They released those recordings of what was being said right before the crash. When those people realized that there was no hope. To say the least, it is disturbing to read those words as they are crashing into the earth. As it were, the words from beyond the grave as as they're read. One can sense desperation. We can feel the fear and the terror that was in their voices as the cabin and the cockpit filled with smoke. They were face to face with death. Now the airline industry cannot go back and fix what happened over 20 years ago. But preventive steps can be taken so that that does not happen again. Value Jet cut corners on maintenance. 
They took chances. They squeezed every bit of profit that they could. And they ignored warning after warning. Now, ValueJet is out of business. They no longer exist. The industry has stricter regulations and standards. And passengers are more careful in choosing which planes to board. Like the transmission saved in what is known as the black box, we have for us, and we can hear, the transmission of a disaster in progress. Now, it doesn't come from a crashing plane. It doesn't come from a burning building or a sinking ship. The words that we hear come from the lips of our Savior about a man who was crashing into a lake and into fire. Jesus gives a never-before glimpse into eternity. Again, most people speculate and we wonder exactly what's it going to be like. Well, Jesus tells us in a fairly detailed statement. Now, we're going to notice that as He was giving us this glimpse, He did not stop to wonder if He was going to hurt someone's feelings because He was speaking the truth. Of course, we know He spoke the truth in love. He did not worry about someone becoming offended because He does not want anyone to be in hell in this place that we're about to discover. The rich man in this life had everything his heart desired. He had it all. He had all the food he wanted. Uh, He had all the clothes he wanted to wear in this physical world. But when it all came crashing down, his priorities changed. Notice what he begged. He said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in these flames. Of course, Abraham goes on to tell him, not so. There's a great gulf fixed. No one can go to you and you cannot come to us. He says, but go send Lazarus and back to my home. I have five brethren there. I don't want them to join me here. He said, not so. They have Moses and the prophets. Oh no, Father Abraham. If one would come out of the grave, they would listen. He says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to one who came out of the grave. How do we know that's a fact? When we read in John chapter 11, and we read the account of this Lazarus, the good friend of Jesus, dying and being brought forth out of the grave after four days, people rejoiced. As we move into chapter 12, we read the account of how people came to visit with Lazarus, wanting to see this man who had been dead for four days, but yet came out of the grave and was now alive. The chief priests and the rulers of Jerusalem, about middle way through that chapter, it is recorded for us that they said, we need to kill that man. Because if he remains, people are going to believe on Jesus. It doesn't make any difference if someone came out of the grave or not. If we will not believe the written Word of God, what He's left for us, we're not going to believe if someone came back from the grave. Those words, I believe, should strike fear and terror into the hearts of any thinking reader. Now, it is the only transmission we have ever received from the place the Bible calls Hades. But because of His great love for us, God has drawn the veil aside just a little 
to let us understand exactly what's going on. Now we're going to be able to learn a little bit of what we all are going to experience in just a little time, right? Because of His great love, He's going to allow those who are faithful to be banqueting in heaven while those who are not are agonizing in the fear of hell. We're going to be in one of two places. And He gives us a glimpse of that. Jesus warns us to be careful to keep up our maintenance on our relationship with Him. We can't cut corners. If we want to avoid hell, and it is absolutely acceptable to fear hell and not want to go there. But we cannot live as if we're never going to crash in this life. We cannot live as if we will go on forever. We have to take preventive steps if we're going to avoid the fear that is the terror of hell. And Jesus tells us that. Now hell is a place of utter fear, but it is also a place of feeling. Feeling. It is a place of unbearable pain. That's what hell is. That's why it's a terror. The rich man could see, he could feel, he could talk, he could reason, and he could remember. All of those feelings were there. Twice he used the words torment and agony, and once he spoke of a flame. Those words speak of a definite feeling of pain, doesn't it? We hear the words agony, terror, fire. Are those pleasant words? That brings on things that we know is painful. We ought to fear that. Torment is the same word the evil spirits used. Of their, of their impending doom as they spoke with Jesus in one they most feared, Mark 5, verse 7. It is also used of the judgment God will bring upon the unfaithful, those who choose not to be His disciples, Revelation 20, verse 10. One person told of a dream that, that she had, which is consistent in many ways with the Bible teaching of hell. I thought it was very interesting. She said this, She said, there was nothing but desolation and hopelessness. You walk towards the gates of hell knowing that you will never again be free. In her dream, she said, I got to the gates of hell and the keeper said, hold it. I stood outside hell and and I saw people whose faces were twisted and tongues were thick, eyes bulging and their hands were split, dripping blood. I said, sir, please let Samarian. He said, no air in hell. Then I said, kind sir, let them have a drink of water. He said, no water in hell. Then I said, if that's true, let them die. He said, no death in hell. Well, how long must they suffer? He said, forever and ever. He said, hell has no exit and there is no death. In hell, Luke described gnashing of teeth. Luke 13.28, Thayer says gnashing is used to denote extreme anguish and utter despair of those men consigned to eternal punishment in hell. Snarling, growling in the sense of biting. It's described as tormented day and night. Revelation 20.10, forever and ever. It does not end. It is everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 46. There's tribulation and anguish, Romans 2, 8 through 9, and there will never be any rest, Revelation 4, 11. In contrast, 
Always remember, heaven is a place of no pain. Revelation 21, 4. Fire is the most common description of hell, isn't it? There will be firemen in hell, as well as policemen and plumbers and preachers. But they will not be able to do anything about the fire that burns in hell or the pain that is there. In this life, we have no unquenchable fire, do we? Maybe an oil fire comes close, but even volcanoes at some point cease spouting lava and turn into cool rocks. The sun will eventually go out, and even that promised fire that will burn up the elements will be extinguished when its fuel is no longer there. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Richard Baxter said this, He said, fire is evidently the only word in the human language which can suggest the anguish of perdition. It is the only word in the parable of the wheat and the tares which our Lord did not interpret. Matthew 13, 36-43 The only reasonable explanation, he said, is that fire is not a symbol. It perfectly describes the reality of the eternal burnings. Is the fire spoken of literal fire? He said it is an accepted law of language that a figure of speech is less intense than the reality. If fire is merely a figurative speech, it must stand for some great reality, and if the reality is more intense than the figure, what an awful punishment symbolized by fire must be. If hell is not filled with the fire that we know, then it must be much worse than that. If fire is the only symbol of what hell is, then hell is worse than the fire that symbolizes it. Marshall Keeble once said, A man could build the hottest fire ever, remove the damned from hell, and place them in that man-made fire, and in ten seconds... They would freeze to death. God has often used fire for divine retribution, hasn't He? We see that in Genesis 19.24 and we all remember Aaron's two sons in Leviticus 10.1 and 2. I want us to notice some things hell is pictured as. It is pictured as a baptism of fire, Matthew 3.11-12. Therefore, hell must be overwhelming. Because that's what baptism is. It means to dip, to plunge, to be submerged, covered completely. The valley of fire is a place to be cast down. It is a lake of fire, Revelation 29. Therefore, hell must be a vast place. Plenty of room for those who do not want to go to heaven. Hell is pictured as a furnace of fire, Matthew 13, 14. 42. Not only is it a huge, vast place, but in some way it is also a place of confinement. You can't get away from it. If it were only a lake, one might be able to lift their head and shoulders out of the lake. But that's not possible. You can't find any relief because there is no relief. The surface of the lake is a burning oven of heat. The walls are fire above and below. Hell will be enclosed with the burning mountains of brass and there will be no breath or wind for the face of those 
who go there. Hell is a place of salting with fire. The figure is shocking to consider. The Jews used salt just as we do, Leviticus 2, 11 through 13. But can you imagine being constantly sprinkled with fire as we might salt a meal? Those who make their living welding understand how fire can come upon you. They often have burns on their wrists and their necks. For 20 years I welded in some way, and I know well the fire that comes with that. As they weld metal under a vehicle or a roof, sparks burn the skin that is exposed, the edge of their gloves, their shirt collars. In a very small way, that must be what hell is like. Constant feeling of pain, tiny burns to go along with that major submersion of fire. In hell, there is great terror. There is fear. There are feelings in hell, but it holds something else. It has the terror of great fervor. Great fervor. We're not going to lose our emotions and our ability to perceive things when we go to hell if we go there. It is a place where there will always be an insatiable thirst, one that can never be quenched. The skeptic Robert Ingersoll said that had he been there, he would have given the rich man some water. Well, there's one truth that this man left out, one fact that he overlooked. He wouldn't have any to give. The rich man craved a drop of water as Lazarus had once craved the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. One drop would not mean very much to us here, would it? But it meant everything to the rich man. Heat on the body precipitates a thirst that can almost never be quenched. And when a patient has a high fever, he begs for water. We need that water, don't we? In contrast, again, heaven is a place where no one will ever thirst again. Revelation 22, 1 through 2. If you're an unbeliever or one who has never obeyed the gospel, the next time you drink a glass of cold water, enjoy it. It may be the last one you ever have. The next time you drive over a bridge crossing a rippling stream, enjoy the look of that, the sound of the water, because if you die without salvation, it'll be the last stream your eyes ever see. The next time you pay your water bill, think of how much you would pay for a single drop of water in hell. Hell will be full of millionaires, and if they had checkbooks, they would pay a million dollars for that one drop of water. Hell is real. It's full of fear. It's full of feelings. It's full of fervor. But there's something else I want to talk about for just a moment that is often overlooked. Hell is a place of forgotten names. Abraham's name is given. Lazarus is mentioned four times. But the rich man's name is never given. We don't know what his name is. In society, the rich man likely was known by everyone in his community. But in eternity, his name was lost. We don't know what it is. Prisoners say that one of the worst parts of being confined is having their names never used. When there is interaction or records or 
whatever needs to be kept. Each prisoner has a personal ID number, and they're known by that number. Patients in hospitals and those who have been committed to mental institutions have expressed the same kind of feelings of being dehumanized when their names are not used. The poor man's name was found in the book of life. The rich man's was not. We know that because John wrote this. Revelation 20, verse 15, and also 21, 27. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whosoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. The thought of having one's name written in heaven is one of the most comforting, beautiful things that we can think of in this life. If our names are known to God in the book of life, we're not going to have the terror of hell. The Lord keeps a book of remembrance. It was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name, Malachi 3.16. He has a book of remembrance. It has our names in it. Jesus said that was a great reason for rejoicing. Do you recall... After he had sent out the 70, Luke 10, 19 through 20, he said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. Names are forgotten in hell. Hell is a place of terror. It's a place filled with fear. It's a place filled with feeling, fervor, and forgotten names. Hell is not where we want to be. And it is also a place that was never intended for God's greatest creation. It was created for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. But we can go there if we prepare to. And if we do not prepare to go to heaven. Of course the preparation needed to ensure us a place in heaven is obedience to the gospel plan of salvation. Faith in who Jesus Christ is. Repentance of all past sins. Confession that He is the Son of God. Baptism. Immersion in water. And why? For the forgiveness of sin. Acts 2.38. Acts 22.16. It adds us to the body of Christ, Acts 2, 47. It puts us into Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. It saves us, 2 Peter 3, 21. And what if we do that, yet we've fallen away? That happens. Well, we have to maintain our maintenance, don't we? We have to maintain our relationship with God. If we sin against God, we have to ask Him to forgive us. We have to repent of that. We have to own what we've done. We have to tell Him and ask His forgiveness. If we keep our maintenance, we can be in heaven one day. Hell is not a place where we want to be. If you're in need or subject to this Lord's invitation, if you feel like you're not on the, the road to heaven like you ought to be, there's only two paths down which we'll trot. 
If we're not on the road to heaven, we are on the road to hell. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.